I'm Timothy. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth. The focus of this episode is truth. In the first half of this week's podcast, New Testament scholar Rob Plummer joins us to discuss the question, did the authors of the Gospels tell the truth? And specifically, did Mark tell the truth about who was the high priest at a particular point in the history of Israel? And I'm Garrick. And in the second half of this episode, we'll be looking at the song, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty by The Cure. If you're interested in digging deeper into the truth of God's Word, take a look at the book, Going Deeper with New Testament Greek, co-authored by Rob Plummer and published by our friends at B&H Academic. For more information about Going Deeper with New Testament Greek and others, go to bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Timothy Paul Jones, and today I'll be having a conversation with Dr. Rob Plummer about the truthfulness and reliability of the New Testament Gospels. Dr. Plummer is the Colin and Evelyn Eichmann Professor of Biblical Studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's the author or the co-author of many books, including Going Deeper with New Testament Greek and the forthcoming Beginning with New Testament Greek. He's best known as the unseen voice behind the daily videocast, Daily Dose of Greek, which you can find at dailydoseofgreek.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. It's a privilege to be here. Well, if you could be a part of any rock band in all of the history of rock and roll, what band would it be and what part would you play? This is a question we ask every guest because even (laughs) though we're very serious about the Bible, we are also very serious about rock and roll. So what band would that be, Rob? And what would be the part that you play in that band? Yes. Well, I'm not a huge rock and roll history guy, but the band that came to mind, probably because I watched the movie on an airplane flight not that long ago, the movie Yesterday. Have you seen that? I have not seen that movie yet. It's a great movie. I mean, there's obviously every movie has some inappropriate parts in it now. But of course, when you watch it on the airplane, usually they cut those off. But it's the idea that there's something that happens that everyone forgets the Beatles music except this one guy. Well, and a few other people, but this mainly this one guy. And then he just starts singing it. And people are like, those are the most amazing songs we've ever heard. And he becomes world. you You should watch the movie. And so, I mean, I do think the Beatles would be interesting. I'm not sure what role. I would want to play probably vocalist, right? You know, I'm not musically talented, so this is not a realistic dream at all. Singing a line of music on the proper pitch is sort of my level I'm just aiming for. Someday, maybe I'll get there. Which is the opposite of your spouse, who is a phenomenal vocalist. She is a, just absolutely amazing Yeah, yeah, she's very gifted. And my children are very good with music, too, but I do not have that gift. It all came from your wife and not from you. I have the gift of music appreciation. Okay. I can sit back and appreciate how well they do. Well, in his book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why, New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman tells the story of how he began to lose his faith in the inerrancy of Scripture. And it was during his second semester as a student at Princeton Theological Seminary, and Bart Ehrman wrote a paper in which he attempted to reconcile what is apparently a historical blunder in Mark chapter 2 and verse 26. 
In this passage, Jesus referred to an event that occurred in the time of the high priest Abiathar, when in fact that event happened, at least according to 1 Samuel 21, during the high priesthood of his father Ahimelech. And so Bart Ehrman writes this paper to show that this is not a historical error after all. But then his professor, a man named Colin Story, responded by writing one single comment on the paper. And the comment that he wrote was, maybe Mark just made a mistake. And according to Bart Ehrman, at that point, he began to move away from his belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. And in time, due to the problem of evil, not due to the problem of inerrancy, he walked away from the faith completely and has ended up as an agnostic and then as an atheist. Now, before we even look at this dilemma in Mark chapter 2 and verse 26, what I want to do first is simply to explore a couple of other important questions. And one of those is, what do we even mean when we talk about inerrancy? What are we meaning? What do you mean when you say that the Bible is inerrant? What are you even talking about? What does that mean to say that we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? Yeah, to affirm the inerrancy of the Bible is to say that the Bible is completely truthful in all the things that the authors of Scripture are asserting. And so, for example, it's nuanced. It takes into account their literary stylistic preferences. For example, they're not intending to be chronological. The Gospels differ on chronology. So you can't hold Matthew, Mark, and Luke to a standard of chronology when they were not intending to do that. But in all things that the biblical authors were intending to affirm or intending to deny, those things are completely truthful and authoritative. So what should our strategy be for dealing with apparent contradictions in Scripture? If we believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, if we believe that what the Bible affirms about itself and what God has affirmed in Christ about the Bible is that it is without error, it's completely true. So what should be our strategy when we do run across these things that it seems like there's an error or a contradiction in the Bible? Yeah, I think there could be a number of different things people could think about in regard to this. Number one, I think it's important for them to realize that they're not asking a question that hasn't been asked before. I mean, if you go back to the earliest writings of the church fathers, you go back to Augustine, Eusebius, you go back to the people that they're quoting, Hegesippus and Julius Africanus, and these people, they're aware of these surface-level discrepancies in Scripture, for example, between the genealogy in Matthew, the genealogy in Luke, and they don't say, oh, just ignore that, or we don't know what to do with that, but they offer multiple historical reflections to explain that apparent discrepancy and methods for approaching texts that are puzzling to us. And so I think, number one, we just realize if you read the Bible carefully, over time, you will end up having questions. And you don't just ignore those. You explore them. There are many excellent resources. Any decent study Bible, the ESV study Bible, the NIV study Bible, these study Bibles address these things, the apologetic study Bible. There are standalone resources of difficult texts to deal with and the way they've been handled in Scripture, handled throughout church history. I think it's also important to not stop being a Christian in that moment, right? We don't suddenly become these atheist historicists, but we remember we have a loving Heavenly Father who cares for us, who is not trying to hide things from us and deceive us and trick us, and we need to be inclined to call out to Him and say, God, I'm reading this, and I don't understand this. Would you help me think through this? Help me think about resources. Help me know who to talk with this about, and and realize that sometimes we may have a question that we hear several responses to, and we're like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm just going to put that on this shelf. And what I know about the God who inspired Scripture, I trust Him, and I can't reconcile that right now, but I realize that I'm okay just setting that to the side for the moment and coming back to visit that at a later time if I need to. I think one of the things you've hinted at there that is so important is What is most important often in this is not that we can answer every single question, but that we have confidence in the character of the God we serve. Because really, inerrancy is not this standalone thing that is apart from the character of God. Rather, inerrancy is a declaration that given the type of God who has revealed himself in Jesus, given the type of God that we know has revealed himself in history and in nature and in Christ, given his character, 
he seems to be the type of God who would give us a word that is trustworthy. And that's really what we're asserting in inerrancy, is that he has given us a trustworthy word. One of the ways that I've heard it said to define and to articulate what it means practically to believe in the doctrine of inerrancy is that the Father does not lie to the Son, the Son does not lie to the Spirit, the Spirit did not lie to the authors of the text, and the authors of the text did not lie to us. In other words, there's something we kind of trace back to the very character of who God actually is and what he's done in history. I like the way you said that, and I like the way it's grounded in relationship, because the Scripture is not, again, it's not like we're going into a laboratory in the Bible as this just object, but it's a communication from the God who is there, from the triune God whom we know through Christ, right, who, as you said, inspired the Word by His Spirit and whose Spirit dwells in us. And I've given the analogy to students before. It's sort of like there comes a point in becoming a believer and coming to know the Bible where it's sort of like a marriage in some sense. There's this level of trust. So you, if you have a healthy marriage, you don't walk around. You know, my wife says, hey, I plan to be at the house all day. And then later I see her out driving around. I don't say, oh, that little liar. What's she doing? You know, like there's a level of, I guess I'll figure out what she, you know, maybe one of the kids got sick. She had to run an errand. I can't reconcile those two facts at this moment, but I know that they will be reconciled. Or maybe I don't even have to ask about that because it's a, not a great deal of concern to me because of the relationship, long-term relationship that exists. Well, with all of that in mind, what are some of the ways that Christians have tried to reconcile this particular problem that we mentioned in Mark chapter 2? Yes, there are a number of ways, as you know, probably as well or better than I do. And I'm not an expert in the history of the interpretation of this particular passage, so I can't give you all the church fathers' different approaches. If I'm not mistaken, I think one of the main ways the church fathers dealt with this, there are a number of texts in the Old Testament that seem to speak of Abiathar as the father of Ahimelech, and then there's several Ahimelechs and Abiathars in the relationship between them. And they saw within that potential scribal corruption within the transmission of the Old Testament scriptures as the question of who was the high priest at that time and so on. I believe Chrysostom and some other people suggested that. You know as well probably that there are some textual variants here, right? And so some people have claimed that actually the text, as is translated in modern translations at the time of Abiathar, the priest that was not present there or it was present in some different format. But again, most people who study the text say, no, it's most likely that this is, in fact, original. Another suggestion is that this is saying, literally, it's three words, right? Epi, Abiathar, Archia, Reos, right? Literally, et Abiathar, high priest, et Abiathar, high priest. And so there's a question, is that talking about the time during the days of? So just like when I was at the University of Arkansas recently, I came back, I said, hey, I got a little tour around campus. I saw where President and Mrs. Clinton lived on campus. Well, they lived there long before he was president, right? But I describe him according to the title that we know him as. And so this is, for some reason, maybe because of the prominence of Abiathar in the life of David, he's a much more prominent than Ahimelech. Maybe that is why Jesus chose to refer to that time period. This happened in this time frame, especially because of the prominence of David in that episode. I'm actually inclined, I was looking at it last night and this morning, thinking about it again today, and you can see the closest parallel to it is in Mark 12, 26, when Jesus again says, have you not read? And he's talking about a passage. He says, epi tu batu, at the bush, epi, right? It's sort of indicating a particular section of text, right? It's recognized as a at the bush section of the Old Testament text I'm quoting. So here, at the section of text, the Abiathar pre-section of text. I wonder if that's more likely. I also saw you know that Matthew and Luke remove this, right? And interestingly, Matthew also removes that epitubatu. He doesn't like the way of, you know, that's not the way he cites scripture. Luke adds in another verb at that point about as remembered by Moses. You know, so it's clear that's not a way that they like to cite a scriptural section of text. A couple of other thoughts I had in relation to it is, it's interesting that the term high priest or chief priest that we're reading here, it's used extensively in the New Testament, over 120 times, it appears, usually in the plural. And within the Gospels, you're talking about Annas and Caiaphas and the high priestly families. So maybe it's noteworthy here 
that the term appears without an article in front of it. He was one of the chief priests, just like there's a multiplicity of chief priests. He was one of them. And even in some Old Testament texts, we have Zadok and his son and Abiathar and his son and referred to as this plural chief priestly group of rulers. So of all of those different potential ideas, thoughts, solutions for this, where do you lean? Where do you say, this one is, I think, probably the most likely out of all the different possibilities? Yeah, I think the most likely is it's used to reference a section of text in the Old Testament. In other words, just like the closest parallel in Mark 12, 26, that the epiphrase followed by a noun is, because remember, there's no chapter divisions at this time. There are no verse divisions. And so, I'm inclined to think that, especially looking at both of those texts and how Matthew and Luke have felt the need to edit them slightly, right? And I'm getting that both from the way they're introduced, have you not read, right? There's a reference to, and there's this need to cite where the text is being read in the Old Testament canon. I do think potentially some of those other suggestions are also in play, like the plurality of chief priest. The significance of choosing, is there some theological nuance or significance in choosing Abiathar as opposed to Ahimelech, either because of his prominence with David or potentially the meaning of his name, even less likely. But yeah, the one that seems most convincing to me today, (laughs) right, I could be wrong, is the citation of a scriptural section. Well, speaking of learning Greek and digging deeper into the Greek language and learning to read the New Testament in Greek, you've got a book coming out called Beginning with New Testament Greek. Could you tell us about what that book really is doing and what you hope to accomplish through this particular book from B&H Academic? Yeah, so most of your listeners probably know the New Testament is written in Greek. So if we want to actually read the words and phrases and sentences of the apostles, we need to be able to read Greek, right? Everything else is is a translation, well, great translations. But for people who are serious about the study of Scripture, there often comes a point where they say, hey, I, I want to go back. I don't want to rely on someone else telling me what the Greek says there. If I see modern translations that disagree, I want to be able to understand why. I want to understand the best commentaries that are referencing the Greek. And so Ben Merkel and I, our goal in producing this was to produce a readable accurate, up-to-date text that introduces people who have never had any Greek before. So whether someone's studying on their own or a Bible college or a seminary, it begins with the alphabet. They learn the alphabet. The book has several features, which I think make it unique, but one of them is that it has links throughout it to video lectures. So someone, for example, who's not able to go to Bible college or seminary would still have a basic set of lectures to work through, not as detailed as an online class with quizzes and additional homework help and all that kind of stuff, but a very solid set of overview lectures through free video links provided in the book. We also will have a website that's given the address given in the book that will have extensive other free materials, digital flashcards, PowerPoint materials, things like that, that I think will aid students in learning to read the Greek New Testament. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to have you on the program again. Good to be here. Thank you for having me, Timothy. Well, to learn more about Dr. Plummer and to learn more about New Testament Greek, subscribe today to Daily Dose of Greek. You can do that at dailydoseofgreek.com. That's dailydoseofgreek.com. It gives you literally a daily dose of Greek. Each day, you'll get a brief video in which you can watch that video and learn Greek over time. And there's even introductory lectures there. And now with this book that Ben Merkel and Dr. Plummer have produced beginning with New Testament Greek, it's never been easier for you to actually be able to learn to read the New Testament in the original languages. So go and start at dailydoseofgreek.com. Now we've come to that point in the program where we bring toys from our children's toy boxes and we place those toys into combat against one another. Yes, that's right. It is the Toy Box Hero Tournament. And so 
We are going to bring forth the toys that we have filched from our children's toy boxes, and we are going to place them into combat with one another. And so, Garrick, go ahead. One, two, three. There it is. See that guy? If you're listening, you can't see it. I brought from my eldest daughter, so I only have three children. So I'm back to the top. By top, I mean oldest. And it's harder to find toys from a teenage daughter. But I managed to procure this magical creature. It's a unicorn. That's what Timothy's looking at right now. And this unicorn is what's called a squishy, which is like a giant unicorn-shaped stress ball. So it's a unicorn. It's a magical creature. So already I feel like I have an advantage. This one is missing an ear. And while you might want to blame that on my teenage daughter, it's actually because this is a very battle-worn unicorn. Very tough. Been in some serious fights against evil centaurs and giants and things like that and has come out on top. So it's ready for whatever you're going. Don't be caught off guard by its cuteness. It's ready for whatever you're about to throw at it. Well, my fourth daughter, she brought forth to me a toy for this, and it is a lightsaber. Not just any lightsaber, (laughs) but this is the double-bladed Inquisitor's lightsaber from the Star Wars Rebels. This is the one that also has this amazing little thing that you can take off somehow. She knows how to do it. Ah, there we go. Okay, that's how you take it off. And you can throw this at somebody. This is like a frisbee of death you keep saying this you, yeah okay <laughs> i was about to say it's you gotta explain it <laughs> i call it a death frisbee you throw it and it can decapitate things like that i think this unicorn was probably ridden by gandalf at some point i'm pretty sure just throwing that out there let me point out I'm, what i'm really most upset by is that my son has that exact same lightsaber <laughs> and now that means i can never use it in this toy box hero so it is a fierce lightsaber i mean honestly if all the lightsabers like this even gives darth mauls a run for its money There's so many things you could do with it. You could, yes, it's a lightsaber, but if you get into close core combat, then you can just punch people with it. And it's got that huge ring. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty impressive lightsaber. Listen, I don't think if these things really existed, here's what I ask myself. What would I rather be a thing like unicorns or lightsabers? And I'm pretty sure that the answer is lightsabers because I wouldn't ever own a unicorn, but I would definitely sell a kidney to have a lightsaber if that's what it would cost me so of the two yeah i'd rather have the lightsaber i think the magical properties of unicorns are pretty powerful i don't even know what they are other than apparently you can drink its blood the silver blood to stay alive forever but yeah somebody does cut its head off then you just drink the blood and stay alive can it drink its own blood like if the lightsaber slices it and it starts (laughs) bleeding can the unicorn drink its own blood to continue to survive and fight and never like i I don't know and we just moved into pg-13 i know know. (laughs) all right i'm gonna call this one a draw because the unicorn has magical properties and yet the lightsaber is just Sheer awesomeness. Sheer awesome. And so we've got a little bit of a balance right there. Do you think a lightsaber could cut off the horn of a unicorn? Like, is that even a... I don't know. I don't know. It's clearly already cut off the unicorn's head. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think... I somehow think that the unicorn's horn has some pretty significant magical properties to it. Well, so. listen, only one of these two things was in the Bible. So just throwing that out there for all you fans of the KJV, that unicorns are biblical creatures. So, Well, you know, lightsabers, it does say in Genesis chapter 3 about the flaming swords at the well, Garden true. of Eden. I'm pretty sure those are lightsabers. I think God just stole that from George Lucas. Well, <laughs> and so... That's right. <laughs> If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. 
I'm Garrick, and in kindergarten, I skipped the bus going to daycare so that I could walk home with a young lady who told me that she was going to teach me how to kiss. I'm Timothy, and when I was a youth minister, we were in a worship service, and the youth got a little bit out of control in the youth worship service, and we left a hole about six foot high and six foot wide in the sheetrock. So I got a banner, covered it up, and swore all the youth to never tell what had happened. But then later, I felt really guilty, and I told the deacons exactly what had happened. And later, I ended up becoming the senior pastor of that particular congregation. Well, atheists cannot live consistently within their old worldview. That's what we're going to look at today. Atheists can't live consistently within their own worldview. And to do that, we're going to take a look at the song Truth, Goodness, and Beauty by The Cure. Now, to talk about the band The Cure is to talk about Robert Smith, because he's really the only consistent member of The Cure all the way back to the beginning of the band. He's the lead vocalist. He's the primary songwriter, the only one who has been with them since the beginning. like The Cure is one of those bands that people know way more of their music than they realize. And I think conversely, there's a lot of songs that get attributed to The Cure that aren't their songs. I think part of that is because they've been around much longer than most people realize. And also, I don't think people realize how many Cure songs have been used in movies. I mean, there's a ton out there. It's, it's kind of funny. I've always liked certain songs from The Cure at certain times in my life. I had an early awareness of their hits, songs like Friday, I'm in Love, Just Like Heaven, Love Song, Close to Me. I knew those, which were all kind of late 80s, early 90s songs, but it wasn't until 94 that they released a song that actually resonated with me. That song is called Burn, and it is the perfect opening track for the movie The Crow, which was really big in my freshman, sophomore year of high school. They started in January of 1976. I was three years old when this group first began to come together, and they began not as The Cure, but as Malice. Malice was the name of the band. No one thinks that The Cure has been around longer than you 2 but in fact, they have. Isn't that crazy? It is. You don't think about The Cure being around that long and with Robert Smith being there the entire time. And when Robert Smith started out with the band, he wasn't the guitar player. He wasn't the lead vocalist. He was actually the keyboardist, but they had this sound originally that began to dissipate very quickly because they began to be influenced by the rising punk movement, the punk rock movement. And punk is just sort of a stripping down of rock and roll. Think about at that time, some of the popular music in the years right before that were, for example, Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland album, which is just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. It's recorded, it's very polished, and it sounds amazing. But there was kind of a pushback against that type of multi-layered recording and a lot of complexity to it and trying to strip down and just get back to almost a primal rock and roll that was just very simple, that was very angry, that was very driven. It seems like many of the times they weren't really sure what they were angry about. They were just angry about something. And so Malice becomes gradually more of a punk band, and Robert Smith ends up being the guitarist and the lead singer for this band. Yeah. <laughs> What's the story behind the switch from Malice to The Cure? Because those two things don't seem all that related. 
Right. They don't seem like they're that related there. They're kind of the opposite thing, malice and a cure at that point. It's really a pretty boring story behind that because there was a song written by one of the members of the band called Easy Cure was the name of the song. And so they started calling themselves after their own song, Easy Cure. And then by 1978, they had become just The Cure. And they released an album about that time called Three Imaginary Boys, which was this really kind of bouncy, happy punk music. And as you get into their music over the next few albums, it becomes very much not bouncy, very much not happy <laughs> at all in any way, shape, the or form. Opposite. It fades. I mean, but that early album, that first album really is this really bouncy, happy punk album. <laughs> And Robert Smith, at this time, he's also serving as the guitarist for a band called Susie and the Banshees, which is a whole different discussion to itself. But he begins to develop this look that people later looking back on begin to refer to it as a goth look. This eyeliner and the smeared lipstick. His hair looks like Albert Einstein's. And really, Robert Smith, he inspired Tim Burton's look that he gave to Edward Scissorhands, which many of our listeners may not even know about the movie Edward Scissorhands. I mean, Edward Scissorhands is basically this cross between Forrest Gump and Frankenstein. And Robert Smith is the template for Edward Scissorhands. So if you think about that picture, if you know what it looks like, you know what Robert Smith kind of looks like. And this kind of summarizes a lot of things about Robert Smith. David Bowie referred to Robert Smith as eccentric. <laughs> Let's just pause for a moment. If David Bowie calls oh. you eccentric, you are really, really, really out there. <laughs> you well, really are. You are past eccentric. But even with all the darkness, even with all the despair, especially on these third and fourth albums from The Cure, you find that the lyrics in these albums frequently, in fact, I wouldn't even say at their best, but at their most artistic, we'll put it that way, at their most artistic, the lyrics in these albums draw so deeply from religious and from spiritual themes. Yeah, their third album, which released in 81, is called Faith. The opening song is entitled The Holy Hour, and it seems to be describing right, a congregation of people that are participating in the Lord's Supper. And here's how Robert Smith describes his response to, to what he sees. He says, I stand and hear my voice cry out, a wordless scream at ancient power. It breaks against stone. I softly leave you crying. I cannot hold what you devour the sacrifice of penance in the holy hour. Powerful words. I mean, it really is at that point. And there seems to be this yearning in Robert Smith for the mystery that he sees in the Lord's Supper in communion, but he can't hold it. He can't hold on to it. He walks away from it. And Robert Smith was actually raised as a Roman Catholic, but then he began to turn his back on religion as early as when he was about eight years old. When he was 14, he reported later, he was drunk at some point, and he had what he himself called, in his own words, a Damascus Road experience in which he became aware that there was something bigger, something more, something larger out there. At least he felt that at that moment. And yet, even with that, he eventually becomes an atheist, turns his back not merely on Christianity, not merely on the church, but on any belief in any divine power at all. And here's what he had to say when he was asked whether the cure's music is a religion. Is the cure a religion? Absolutely not. If the cure is a religion, I wouldn't do it. I hate religion. Yeah. I hate all religion. I think religion is the is at the heart of so much discontent and idiocy in the world. I think all, all faith is terror. But that's the name of one of your albums. Yeah, because I was like 20 years old and I was coming to terms that I was brought up in a religious family, in a yeah. Catholic family, and I knew when I was eight years old that it was and It took me a long time to um, escape the mindset of hell angels and devils and stuff. By the time they recorded their fourth album in 82, The Cure descended into deep alcoholism, drug abuse. Robert Smith was suicidal. He decided to try and make an album 
out of his darkest feelings, which is apparent if you listen to him. Robert Smith said later, he said, we got a hold of some very disturbing films and pictures to kind of put us in the mood. And I wondered later, was it really worth it? We were only in our early 20s, and it shocked us more than I realized how evil people could be. And so they just are filling their minds not only with drugs, not only with alcohol, but also these perverse and violent and degrading images that work their way into this fourth album. And he admits, he says, it had a very detrimental effect on everyone in the group. And it's really apparent on the album. I would call the music a gloomscape is really is the only thing I can think of. It's dull, not in the sense of being boring, but it's dull in the sense of like a throbbing pain. It's like a a musical toothache. I just don't think the world was ready to sit and stew in the dark places that these guys were in their young 20s. That's the other crazy thing. Their young 20s being in the early 1980s. And so they began producing several hits, right? In the next few years, some well-known songs like Close to Me, a few years after that, Just Like Heaven. So we begin to see a different band in a sense. Yeah, they really begin to, as they just kind of find this other rhythm, we might say. And in the midst of this, there's also personal changes in this. So, Robert Smith, he had met a girl named Mary Poole when he was 14 years old, fell in love with her. And in 1988, they got married. And they are still married today. They've been married over three decades now. And the song, Just Like Heaven, the song Love Song, were written for her. But then in 2004, they release another album that's simply titled The Cure. After all these years, they finally get around to naming an album after themselves. Most bands get around to that in their first or second album. But it's their 12th album by this point. And it also includes a song that really is stunningly beautiful. And the name of that song is Truth, Goodness, and Beauty. That song is so full of a yearning, a longing for things that are good and true and beautiful. And the very name of the song, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty, those are what are called in philosophy, theology, and many other areas, the transcendentals, okay? The transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty are the three transcendentals. And these transcendentals are really an answer to the philosophical question, and that is, what are the properties of pure being? What are the things that transcend space and time and cultural context? What are those things that we aspire to that are true no matter where we are or what is going on? And there are philosophers, many philosophers, who concluded that those things that transcend culture and time and space to which humanity aspires, those things are truth and goodness and beauty. Then this isn't even a distinctly Christian concept. This comes from Greek philosophers. You find it even in them like Parmenides and Socrates as well. Yeah, or if you are from the 80s and a fan of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, of course, that's Socrates. They lost Socrates. Socrates. Hey, we know that name. Yeah. Hey, look him up. 
Oh, it's under Socrates. Oh, yeah. Everything that does exist, in a sense, could be thought of to partake or participate in these transcendental properties. And here's what I want us really to think about and look at today, and that is that you cannot rationally or consistently get to any of these truth, goodness, or beauty, any of these transcendentals on the basis of the worldview that Robert Smith says that he believes in and that he espouses. Right. So, his stated worldview, Robert Smith's stated worldview is atheistic, right? He says he believes in the futility of life and the pointlessness of existence. In an interview he gave in 1989, he said, I used to lay myself open to visions of God, but I never had any. I come from a religious family, and there have been moments when I've felt the oneness of things, but they never last. They fade away, leaving me with the belief that it's only fear that drives people to religion. And I don't think I'm ever going to wake up and know that I was wrong. And yet, we find that he longs for truth and goodness, and beauty, and perhaps most significant, as we saw earlier in that recording of the fourth album and his response to the degrading images with which they filled their minds to get them in the mood for that album, he has a clear sense in his own words that some things are truly evil. Some things are evil. And he says years after that, he said, was it really worth it? It deeply affected him. It shocked him, he said, how evil people could be. And here's the question I want to raise. If life is really futile, if there is no transcendent truth or goodness or beauty, how do we determine that what they saw and what they placed before themselves as they made that album, how do we say it's evil? Who's to say what is really evil if there is no transcendent truth, if there is no transcendent goodness or beauty, if there's nothing that tells us that is larger than ourselves that certain things are good or evil or beautiful or not or true or false. Christians believe that these transcendentals aren't simply philosophical categories, but they're theological truths because we believe that they point to and they speak of the character of God. So, the Psalms and the prophets speak often of God's glory, and glory is what Bavink calls Scripture's special word for the beauty of God. Manifest in God's glory is His greatness, His splendor, His majesty, and these divine attributes, which seem to be synonyms in a sense, biblical synonyms for the transcendentals we're discussing, they elicit worshipful adoration gratitude, praise, and honor within us because they reflect ultimate reality. What's that ultimate reality that that we as Christians believe? We believe it's the one who alone is good and beautiful and true. And so, for Christians, we believe that truth and goodness and beauty have a reality that they come from, they participate in, And we believe that they matter because there is an ultimate standard for truth and goodness and beauty, and that is a person. It is God himself. And I want us to think about the inconsistency in Robert Smith's worldview in that he is longing for, he is recognizing the value of truth and goodness and beauty. He's recognizing the reality of moral evil in the world, that it's not just something that happens, but it is there is real, moral, and personal evil. And I want us to recognize that you can't have both a recognition of the need for truth, goodness, and beauty, and the recognition that there is true moral evil. You can't have that in a truly atheistic worldview that is consistent with itself. And when we do this, this is called a presuppositional argument. And what we're saying in a presuppositional argument is that somehow in what you are arguing or what you are doing, the way you are living, you are presupposing something that is inconsistent with your worldview. So, when we as Christians use a presuppositional argument, what we're doing is we're looking at an unbeliever's life or how they think, and we're saying, look, you can't get to some of the things you've gotten to without drawing at some level from a 
theistic worldview, a worldview that depends on God. You can't get that. That's what we're saying to do with Robert Smith and the cure. We're saying, look, he says that he's an atheist. He says he believes everything is meaningless. You can't have an atheistic, meaningless universe at the same time that you have a yearning and a need for truth and goodness and beauty and a recognition of the goodness of truth and goodness and beauty and the reality of real moral evil, you can't get both of those. And what we're pointing out at that point is that an atheist cannot live consistently within her or his own worldview. It's not consistent. To be able to live a meaningful life, you got to borrow something from Christianity and from theism. You can't live a meaningful life with real moral choices and moral beliefs and moral consequences without at some level drawing something from a theistic worldview instead of an atheistic worldview. Robert Smith says at one point, every animal would rather die themselves than lose their offspring. But here's what he says then after that. He says, but it's all genes, isn't it? It's all just genes isn't it? Do you see his worldview right there? He's saying that our love for, our care for, our children is nothing more than just genetics. There's nothing more in that. But again, if it's all just genes, if it's all just genetics, if there's no transcendent meaning at all, why does it matter if I hurt someone? Why does it matter that I seek truth and goodness and beauty? Who's to say that anything is really evil at all? And yet, you've got a man here in Robert Smith who simultaneously says it's all just genetics. I'm an atheist. Everything is meaningless. And yet, at the same time, he yearns for, he sees the value of truth, goodness, and beauty, and he believes that there's real moral choices that we make and that there's real things that are evil that should not be done at all, and you can't consistently have that worldview. He is living in an inconsistent worldview. At a press conference in 1992, he commented, I don't believe in God. I wish I did. But other times, it seems like he simply sees everything as meaningless and absurd. At times, we see him searching. And at other times, it almost seems as if he's given up. He's come to a point where he believes it's impossible to find whatever it was he was once looking for. So Now, in all of this, I just have to admit that I admire anyone who manages to work philosophical transcendentals into a song for popular consumption. And this song, Truth, Goodness, and Beauty, really does have a bit of a beautiful twist to it as well. About halfway through the song, Robert Smith encounters a girl who sees herself as the opposite of truth and goodness and beauty. She says in her own words, all that she says is a lie. She feels like she is ugly and evil. And then Robert Smith goes on in this song to suggest that truth and goodness and beauty, what he seems to be suggesting is that they are elusive. You can't quite reach them. You reach for them. You can almost touch them, but you never can actually grasp and get a hold of them. But then as the song comes to an end, he he seems like he finds truth and goodness and beauty in this girl who had seen in herself nothing but lies and evil and ugliness. And what he seems to be expressing, if I'm reading rightly between the lines of this song, is that he has found truth and goodness and beauty in this woman that he has loved for more than 30 years. And as beautiful as that sentiment is, the fact is is that even the best of friends and even the most trusted spouse are only dim echoes of real truth and real goodness and real beauty. Yes, there is truth and goodness and beauty in our closest friendships, in our spouse, in many things in life. We taste little fragments of truth and goodness and beauty, but ultimately, these realities are only found purely and perfectly in the being of God and supremely in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in Jesus. When we look at Jesus we see truth and goodness and beauty enfleshed. 
And the fact is that even if, even if truth and goodness and beauty could be found anywhere in anything in this world, even if there was something in this world that was true and perfect, truth and goodness and beauty, Robert Smith's worldview is still left with the dilemma of how, if everything, as he himself says, is merely genetics, everything is meaningless, it's just genetics, and there is no God, how can he assert, as he does, that there is real evil and real good in the world? There are some things that are evil, there are some things that are good. The fact is, an atheistic, mechanistic universe that's naturalistic it simply cannot account for consistently and coherently. It cannot account for real, personal, good, or evil in the world. And some atheists actually admit this. Richard Dawkins, in his book, River Out of Eden, he says that in a consistently atheistic worldview, there is, here's Dawkins' words here, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, Robert Smith, he rightly recognizes that there is actually good and evil, and he yearns for, he longs for truth and goodness and beauty. But what Robert Smith doesn't seem to see is that the recognition of good and evil that he rightly holds and the yearning for truth and goodness and beauty that is in his very soul, that that is inconsistent with his own understanding of reality. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast.